Good evening. Welcome to Grace Church of Mentor and our evening Bible study on this Sunday night. I'm glad that you've been able to join us in our online opportunities as we continue studying through the book of Luke and our Sunday night services this year. Tonight finds us in Luke chapter 11. We started the 11th chapter last week and looked at the Lord's instruction for us in the first 13 verses concerning the whole area of prayer. <clears throat> As we move into verse 14 and following, uh, tonight we want to get from uh, verse 14 down through verse 36, a little bit longer section tonight, but a very important section in the thematic development of the book of Luke. This is also parallel to the structure of the book of Matthew, when these two men gave a record of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the earlier chapters of their uh, books. They have presented who Christ is, they have presented his ministry, the message that he preached, and the authentication of that message through the miraculous working uh, of the Son of God in doing many, many things that demonstrated that he was indeed God in the flesh. But what was going on in the hearts of the people who were hearing him is that while some of the Jewish people believed him, there was a growing segment of the Jewish population that were resisting him. They were opposing him. They did not believe that he was indeed the Messiah. And that we find in our text today in Luke chapter 11 comes to a head in this passage of scripture and this entire course of this section is in regard to the opposition to the Lord's ministry. And what we're going to see from here through the rest of the book of Luke is that the Lord turns from a more public ministry to a more private ministry of teaching and instructing his followers, especially the 12 apostles, but uh, his, his followers. Instead of being as public, he's going to be more private in conversation and in teaching. It doesn't mean that he doesn't do any more public miracles or any more public ministry. But he has given the nation the opportunity to hear the declaration that their Messiah has arrived. Here is what they do with it in this passage. So beginning with verse 14. And he, a reference to Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ... He was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a house divided against itself falls. Now that's as far as I'm going to go right now because this section of the paragraph sets up the main, uh, the main event that is going on here. The rest of this is going to be Christ's response to the opposition that has been declared. This is parallel to the book of Matthew in chapter 12 beginning with verse 22 through verse 32. I'm not going to take time to look at that tonight, but it is in that passage that we are told that it was the Pharisees who make this statement. Perhaps it's a statement made more than once. 
In Matthew 12, it's recorded that it was made by the Pharisees. Here, he just says in verse 15, some of them said. So the Lord Jesus Christ does a miraculous work. He demonstrates in front of a crowd of people that he had the power over the demonic forces in this world. He demonstrated that he had spiritual authority over the demons by casting this demon out of this man who was mute. Now, whether the man had been physically mute before the demon possessed him, we do not know. But the man is referred to as mute in this passage. The mute man spoke. The man who had been mute under the influence of this demon who possessed him was able to speak. The fact that the man spoke was a demonstration that the demon was gone. So Christ does a miracle in front of a crowd of people. The crowd is amazed at the end of verse 14. That's good. It's good for a crowd to be amazed, but that is not necessarily the same thing as a crowd believing, a crowd understanding the significance of the miracle. It is not the same as a crowd trusting Jesus Christ as their Messiah. It is simply a crowd amazed. The fact that the crowd is amazed is a clear demonstration of the power that was shown in the miracle that was done. The detail, any more details are not given. There's more detail actually given with regard to the response. And it was a twofold response. There were two, uh, b besides those that were amazed, there were two other groups of people present there. Verse 15 records the first group who, in opposition to Christ, in rejection of his ministry, say this He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. They stand up and in front of the crowds, they say, this man is using the devil's power to cast out these demons. The word Beelzebub was a word from the Old Testament that uh, literally meant the Lord of the flies. It was a term used in ridicule by the Jews referring to all of the Baal gods around them or many of the Baal gods around them. But it was a specific, specific and distinct reference to the devil, to Satan. And so these people, in order to uh, belittle the ministry of Christ, in order to cast doubt upon the person of Christ, the authenticity of his message, the authority with which he spoke, in order to cast doubt upon it, they say this man is in league with the devil himself. That's quite an accusation. That's a very serious accusation. It's a very clear accusation. It is a very clear rejection of all that Jesus has preached, all that Jesus has done, of everything that we know from the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a clear, complete rejection of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. These are Jewish people who are saying this. They are rejecting the idea that Jesus could possibly be their Messiah. That's very clear. 
Now there's a second group in verse 16 who they wanted to sound a little more spiritual. And so they say, in order to test him, give us a sign from heaven. The other, in the words of verse 16, others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. This is actually another outright rejection of the authority that he has just demonstrated to them in doing the miracle that he did in verse 14. This is a rejection. It, it's it's uh, cloaked in nicer words. It makes it sound like they're sincerely interested in seeing a sign from heaven. But there are three things in this verse that indicate to us the heart problem of the people who are asking. First of all, they do it to test him. Luke gives us that information that these people have the wrong motive. They are saying what they are saying in order to test Christ. That is part of their rejection of him. The second thing is, is they were demanding of Christ a sign. They were demanding of Christ a sign. The creature has no right to demand of the creator anything. These people were putting themselves in a place of authority over him to demand of him. And the word demand is in the present tense. They were, they were demanding it, demanding it, demanding it, demanding it. They were probably clamoring for a sign. They didn't just say it once. This is repeated. It was going on. And the third thing we see there is they're asking for a sign. They're asking the Lord Jesus Christ to give them a sign from heaven, which he just did. He just gave them a sign. He just gave them a sign in verse 14. He demonstrated power over the world of the demons, over angelic powers, fallen angels, who are more powerful than men. Jesus, as a mere man, could not have done that. And so Jesus has just demonstrated that he has power over the angelic realms. They say, well, you know, maybe, maybe they just were, you know, not, not understanding it. Maybe they were just really asking for a sign. Well, I want you to think about something with me for a few minutes. If you will go back to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. In Luke chapter 7, we've already seen this in this gospel that some of the disciples of John, in verse 18, reported to John about all the things that they had seen Jesus do. And in verse 19, we read that John summoned two of his disciples, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you and asked to ask, are you the expected one? A, a very clear reference to the Jewish Messiah. Or do we look for someone else? Verse 21, At that very time he cured many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That was Jesus' answer to the question, 
Are you the expected one? And it is an answer, absolutely, yes, I am. We know that because of the Old Testament instruction back in uh, Isaiah chapter 35, a passage which a great many people would immediately recognize as referring to the presence of the Messiah in Israel, the coming of the Christ, Isaiah 35, beginning with verse 1, The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. This is a very clear kingdom passage of the Messiah. Verse 3, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Verse 5, notice this. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, part of the desert of Israel. Isaiah chapter 35 makes it very clear of what will the Messiah will do when he comes. Luke chapter 7 records that Jesus' answer to John the Baptist when he asked, Are you the one who is coming? He said, Go and tell him the miracles you have seen. And when you tell him the miracles you will see that you have seen that will answer his question, yes, I am the expected one. And so here in Luke chapter 11 and verse 14, when the Lord Jesus Christ casts out a demon and enables a mute man to speak, he has accomplished one of the signs of the Messiah from Isaiah 35. He has just given them a sign of who he is. And so verse 16, the request for a sign is not an indication of their, of their submission, of their belief, of their, of their understanding, of their cooperation. They actually are minimizing what Jesus has just done and using it as an excuse to say, well, we want something more grand and more glorious. But we see in verse 17 that the Lord Jesus seeing right through what they have said, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, and he begins to give them his answers. Now, these answers are in two sections. I believe that verse 18, uh, really the second half of verse 17, all the way down through verse 26, is his first answer to the first objection, the first rejection. The, the rejection and accusation that he has done this work by the power of Beelzebub, he's going to deal with that in verse 17 through verse uh, 26. There's a little interlude in verses 27 and 28 that we'll get to in a few minutes. And then he gives the second answer to the second rejection when he talks about the signs. You folks want a sign? I will tell you something about signs. And, and the wickedness of a generation that seeks after signs, and especially when those signs have just been done in their midst, beginning in verse 29 and going through verse 36. So this first answer to the first accusation, to the first rejection begins 
with this now, I think, familiar statement, familiar to those of you that have read and studied New Testament. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. He expands on that in verse 18. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if by Beelzebub I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. His first part of this is the very simple explanation that if this was Satan doing this, if I was doing this by the power of Satan, the, it would be a divided kingdom. It doesn't make any sense. What you're, what you're accusing makes no sense. And if I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, how are you, some of you Jewish people, some of your very sons are out there saying they can cast out demons. If I'm doing it by the power of Beelzebub, how are they doing it? And so he demonstrates to them the folly of their, their very accusation. But he then goes on and declares his own victory over the house of Beelzebub. Verse 20, But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that if is a very clear declaration of what he has just done. If I can cast out demons, and if I have just done it by the finger of God, which of course I have, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He doesn't say in fulfillment of Isaiah 35 or other passages, but he could have. In verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all the armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. And Jesus is saying, I have come up against the devil in his house, the strong man fully armed who guarded his own house. But I have come as one who is stronger than he, and I have attacked him. I have overpowered him. I will take away all of his armor on which he had relied, and I will distribute his plunder. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 comes to mind, and it probably came to the mind of some of those Jewish listeners, where in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord promised Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. Yes, the serpent would bite the heel, the seed of the serpent would bite the heel of the seed of the woman, but he would crush the serpent's head. And that is exactly what Christ did on the cross. This is a declaration of the superiority of Christ over all the powers of the devil. This is a very clear uh, statement. It is, he's using illustrations here. He uses the illustration of someone owning their home and protecting their home. He uses the illustration of someone coming in and overpowering the owner and taking away all that the owner has. He gives a picture, an illustration of victory. And in verse 23, he says something more about that victory. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Now we have to take this in the context. 
And I think in the context, it's very clear that he is saying that those of you who are accusing me are not with me. And if you are not with me, then you are against me. He's saying there is no neutral ground here. You have to, you have to make a choice. And if you do not gather with me, then you are scattering. I have gained complete victory over the house of the devil. And if you want to be on the side of victory, you must join with me. If you choose not to join with me, then you are on the side of those who will not be victorious. The one who trusts Christ participates in complete victory. He's going to go on and illustrate this, I believe, in verse 24 and following. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ confronts the rejection by the Jewish leaders. And in Matthew brings out the, the, the area of this being an unpardonable sin, the unpardonable sin. And that, that is not brought up in Luke, so I'm not taking time on that tonight. But you're familiar with that whole passage and that whole discussion. The Lord Jesus Christ is confronting unbelief. He is confronting opposition. This is public opposition. He confronts it publicly. They oppose him. He states very clearly their unbelief, their destruction, their uh, being conquered and overcome by his own victorious person. He is going to go on later throughout the Gospels and in the Gospel of Luke, and he's going to warn the people about the leaven of the Pharisees, the, the uh, leavening effect of unbelief as it can spread through the people from the Pharisees to others. And so he makes this very strong statement about this rejection of him and the accusation of him doing these things by the power of Beelzebub. When Jesus cast out a demon, it was demonstrating that he had power over the household of the devil and that he could come in and clean house at any time because he had that kind of authority. You can find a great many examples in the New Testament of Christ casting out demons. In fact, in verse 24 through 26, he goes on to another uh, section of this. <clears throat> And I believe this is more of an application to the listeners uh, that he wants them to think about. Verse 24, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it comes, or goes, and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So this is an, an illustration of what happens when someone does not have a complete victory. And, and I think this is an exhortation not only to those who have been delivered from the power of the devil, but from the people listening and their understanding of these things. When the Lord Jesus Christ delivered a man from an unclean spirit, it was necessary for that person to trust in the Messiah. 
It was necessary for that person to come and be filled with the fullness of God's grace and mercy, to be filled with the Word of God, with the, filled with the, the law of the Old Testament, to be filled with a love for the Lord uh, God in response to the first and second great commandments and a love for others. Because if that unclean spirit comes back and finds that the house, while being put in order, is still empty, that demon may come back in place. In other words, Christ is saying that one who trusts completely in Christ has a complete victory, not a temporary victory. One who makes the personal choice of coming to Christ has a complete victory, not an incomplete victory. He warns uh, in Matthew, the parallel passage in, in Matthew talks about uh, folks being part of this evil generation. He is talking to his listeners who have listened now to this rejection of his miracle. And he's saying to the people, do not just let your, your life and your house be empty. Yeah, it might be, maybe you've been purged from an unclean spirit, but you must, in faith, be filled with the Word of God. You must be filled with faith. You must be filled, then, with the love for the Lord. It's not enough just to have your house cleaned out of the garbage, but you must have God's complete presence within. So instead of a complete victory, some people end up with an incomplete victory, and when they do... They find themselves overcome by more demons than before, and they are in worse shape. This, I believe, is a warning to the listeners. It is an invitation to the listeners to trust in him completely and to have the fullness of life in a fullness of a relationship with God. Now, before we go to, this, to his response in verse 29 to the second objection, the second rejection, there's an interlude in verses 27 and 28. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. This is it's just a, a, a very clear demonstration of, of the sometimes randomness of life. This is just how sometimes life interrupts what we're doing and something else comes up. And, and that's exactly what happens. This woman came up to the Lord. Um, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice. She was close enough to cry out to him. And, and probably in response to the, the depth of his teaching, the clarity of his teaching, the application of the Old Testament in spirit and in truth, I think she's responding in a very positive way. She's saying, blessed is the womb that bore you. Bless, blessed is your mother for bringing you birth. And it, what strikes me is that this just seems uh, such a typically Jewish motherly sentiment of the biblical times of the first century here. A Jewish mother thinking, oh, your mother must be so proud of you. Your mother must be so delighted with, with who you are and who you've turned out to be and all that you're saying and all that you're doing. And so her thoughts go to the blessedness of the woman that brought forth this great teacher or preacher or even if she believed he was the Messiah. Now, 
Christ does not condemn her. Uh, he does say something that takes it in a different direction, but this actually is a fulfillment of something that Mary had said herself when she understood the amazing and marvelous work of the Lord in causing her to be the virgin mother of the Messiah, that she said, all women, women will call me blessed. Elizabeth also, in her declarations back in chapter 1 and verse 42, talked about this uh, joy and the blessedness that would come. But Jesus doesn't go there. He doesn't rebuke her, but he, he tells her that there is something that supersedes the blessing on his mother. He said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. My friend, it is more important that we be a student of the word of God, that we be a, a diligent reader and student and learner of the word of God so that we may obey it, so that we may fulfill it, so that we may do it. Uh, hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, is the Old Testament cry, and the word to do it, to obey, is often a part of that exhortation. Blessed is the one who hears the word of God and observes it. And this is not taking anything away from the place that Mary played in history, but that's not the emphasis of the New Testament. That's not the emphasis of the Christian life. That is not the emphasis of the teaching of the whole Bible. In, fa in, in fact, the, the great emphasis of Scripture is on obedience from Genesis to Revelation. And so he deals with that interlude that comes up as an interruption from someone crying out in the crowd and makes this great statement about the importance of obedience to the Word of God. But now in verses 29 and following, he deals with the second group which are opposing him in this setting. The first group claimed that he was doing his work by the power of Beelzebub. The second group was clamoring for a sign, was calling out for a sign, which he had just done. And so they're rejecting that sign and saying, give us another sign. Give us a bigger sign. Give us another bigger, greater miracle. And so in verse 29, the crowd increasing, the crowd is continuing to grow around him. <coughs> and he says, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. Now, in Matthew, he goes into the detail of that sign of Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish, and Jesus three days before his resurrection, after he was crucified, after he was buried. But he doesn't go into that sign uh, at this point. But he says, this generation is a wicked Generation. This is judgment on this generation. He is declaring that a judgment of, of the spiritual nature of the people who are speaking to him. And he said, there, there is a sign that's going to be given. It will be the sign of Jonah. But, but he does something very interesting here in verse 30. He switches from the sign of Jonah to the message of Jonah. 
Verse 30, For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And he takes the emphasis in verse 30 off of the Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the fish to Jonah being a sign to the Ninevites, which was his message to the Ninevites. He went to Nineveh and he preached there that God's judgment was coming unless Nineveh would repent. And so just as Jonah went and preached to the Ninevites and became to them God's messenger, God's word, God's miraculous revealed word declared to them, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. And the Son of Man indeed has been all through the Gospel of Luke and through the rest of it, through the years of his ministry, he was declaring the truth of the Word of God. The Son of Man himself was that sign. They are rejecting it. He is rebuking them. And he gives two historic illustrations in reference which demonstrate the guilt of the present generation, the wickedness of the present generation, the judgment that will come upon the people to whom he is speaking who are rejecting him. He first of all references the Queen of the South. We would refer to the Queen of Sheba back in uh, the book of Kings. And then secondly, uh, the men of Nineveh, as those two people or groups, the first a person, the second a group, who will come and stand in judgment. Notice verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, we're not going to take the time this evening to go back and look at the book of 1 of, uh, Kings, but you can do that and read those early chapters of the book of 1 Kings, the, the reign of Solomon, especially there in chapters 8, 9, 10, uh, and, and the greatness that came. That because Solomon asked God for wisdom, God not only gave him wisdom, but gave him great wealth. And the, the greatness of the kingdom of Solomon is described in those chapters. So fabled was the wisdom and the wealth of Solomon that people came from all over the known world to Israel to see Solomon, to hear his words. And one of those people who came was the queen of the south. And the fact that she was willing to travel from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon demonstrated that she had a greater heart for seeking what God had to say than the Jewish people who were standing around listening to Jesus Christ. There are many times in the New Testament when we find that the Gentile people have a greater heart to listen than the Jewish people. And this is one of those times. The Queen of the South was not a Jewish woman. She was a non-Jew, a Gentile. And here she is coming. And, verse 31 ends, And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This woman traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles to come and hear the wisdom of Solomon. And now you're standing here in the presence of someone greater than Solomon. And there had been no king greater than Solomon. There had been no wisdom greater than Solomon's. 
Someone greater than Solomon is here. And, and you are standing here and you're rejecting it. The queen of Sheba is going to stand up with this generation and pass judgment. In verse 32, he continues, It's not just the queen of Sheba, but the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah himself didn't like the people of Nineveh. The Ninevites were their enemies. The Assyrians, the capital city of Nineveh, the Assyrians were the enemies of Israel. And that's why Jonah didn't want to go to preach to them. He was afraid they would repent and God would be merciful to them. He didn't want God to be merciful to them. He wanted God to zap them. But the men of Nineveh did hear the preaching of Jonah. And they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And God was merciful to that generation of Ninevites. And those Ninevites, Christ is saying, will stand up with this generation at the judgment as witnesses. And their witness will condemn this generation because a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus was greater than the greatest king of Israel. Jesus was greater than the prophet Jonah. Jesus' message is the word of God. It's the revealed word. It is the important message that the people need. It is the life-giving message that the Jewish people need. It is the expounding of the truth of the grace and mercy of the God of the Old Testament. It is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament coming together in Jesus Christ a greater than Jonah, a greater than Solomon. And the generation who is listening to Jesus will come under judgment for what they're rejecting. Those are two very clear answers to two very clear rejections of Christ. He ends the, this section with a warning in verses 33 through 36. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your, ear, when your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays." Now, this passage goes in a little bit different direction than uh, another reference in the New Testament with putting the lamp under a bushel. There is that aspect of this that when, when we know Christ, we are a light unto the world, and God does not want us to hide our light under a bushel. But that does not seem to be the emphasis with which uh, Christ uh, goes here, that he's, that he's using here. Instead, in verses 34 through 35, he talks about the fact that sometimes even when there's light, if your eye is not working, then you're still full of darkness. So the light comes into your presence, but if your eyes are not working, you are still full of darkness. What is he saying? I think he's telling the people, I am here, I am the light, the light is not being hid under a bushel, but you cannot see it. Your eyes are bad, 
Watch out, verse 35, that the light in you is not darkness. You think you're walking in the light. You have the law. You have the prophets. You have the inheritance of the covenant as Jewish people. But you're not coming by faith. You're not listening to what I'm saying. You're not seeing who I am. You're rejecting the very signs that God is giving you. You're accusing me of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub. In fact, I have just demonstrated that I have demolished the house of Beelzebub. You reject the signs that I have done, but this is the very sign that Isaiah the prophet declared you should look for to know who I am. My friend, you're, you're out there and your eyes see, but they, 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 they have light coming to them, but they don't see who is in front of them. Your eyes aren't working. You are still in your darkness. But he invites them in verse 36 to come into the fullness of the light. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Open your eyes. See who I am. Open your eyes and understand. Dispel the darkness. Come to the light. What a powerful invitation after denouncing the rejections, the rejections of those perhaps a minority. I don't know how many there were who were rejecting him, but he's inviting the entire audience to see who he is, to come to the light, to recognize the reality that Jesus indeed was the Messiah because he was doing the signs which God had promised. So my friend, as we come to the end of this passage of Scripture tonight, we're not going to stand in a crowd and see Jesus do a miracle. We're not going to hear him preach. That is all finished. His work on earth is done. His work on the cross is finished. But I believe that every individual is still responsible to God for a choice of what they will do with Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Was he just a teacher? Was he a good teacher? Was he a good man? Yes, he was all of those things but he was much more. He was God in the flesh. He was the Messiah of Israel. He was the Savior and Redeemer of mankind. He was God who became a man so that he might take our sins upon himself and die on the cross as the only way for our sins to be redeemed, to be paid, for the punishment to be removed. Jesus took our punishment on himself. And there may be folks listening tonight, and you, you've heard that message. You've heard about Jesus. Maybe, you, maybe you've heard that message, but your ears still aren't open. Maybe you have seen that dim glimmer of, of information, but you have never fully seen the light of who Jesus Christ is, my friend. You need to acknowledge your sinfulness and your inability to save your own soul. Your inability to do right before God. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty that we deserve so that we might come to him and receive everlasting life. God wants you and I to come to Christ and acknowledge who he is, that we might come into the light, that we might come into the presence of God, and that we might have life in our Savior. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Messiah of Israel, Savior of the world. He's my Savior. He's my Redeemer. 
because I'm a sinner and I have no hope. I have no help apart from Christ. My friend, I invite you as well to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray tonight that you will use your word, anoint it to our hearts, apply it to listeners' ears. And Father, I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified through the obedience to the gospel of hearts tonight. Strengthen us in our understanding, in our growth, in our grasp of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.